Uh, see what a difference prophesying over yourself makes? I mean, do you remember that a few weeks ago I said, oh, I'll never remember 84321, right? And now look at me. I mean, isn't it great? I mean, anything is possible. I am just going to wait one second. Um, we, we have a special guest that's with us today, and many of you know her. And um, I hadn't planned to have her share, and right now she's trying to encourage her little one to go downstairs, and uh, we'll see what happens. But um, if she comes back in, or when she gets back in, uh, I may ask her to come and just share a little bit. But uh, Brittany Bragg is one of our global partners, uh, her and her husband, Mauricio, and he is still overseas. In fact, he's speaking at a conference this week, and so, but she's here visiting family. She's got family in this area, and so she is here today. And if you would, do you mind coming to the front? And so, but Brittany started coming to this church at the same time I did. And so she was in high school, and I was the youth pastor, and, um, but she has been on staff with us for a number of years and served as our worship pastor, and she worked with the ESL students at the high school, but then went to Spain as a missionary associate, and now she is serving in Turkey with her husband, and she is just going to greet us. Would you greet us, and then will you pray? Can you pray for us? I just feel like you have to, and so I hate putting people on the spot. Um, it's something I never do, but here you go on the spot. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Oh, it's such a blessing to be here. I can't even tell you. It's so refreshing, so incredibly refreshing to come. And I think I say the same thing. Every time I come, I just love to worship among you guys, worship in English. I was just, I just felt so free in worship. And I'm just so thankful. I'm thankful for you guys because you support us, you love on us, you send us messages. And we have gone through a lot in the past couple of years with our pastor in jail and everything unexpectedly and now out of jail. Praise God. He's free and he's here and God is continuing to work in Turkey. And honestly, I will just say that because of the prayers of God's people for our pastor and for Turkey, the eyes of the world looking towards Turkey, something is breaking wide open my husband is just, he just keeps sending me messages like, I can't believe what's going on here. There's people getting saved every week. People are coming into the church and they're giving their hearts to Jesus. And so thank you for praying. Thank you for supporting us. We can't do anything without the Holy Spirit. We can't do anything without God. And you just look around and you think, wow, this is a really hopeless situation. Um, yeah, Turkey is a Muslim country for those of you who don't know. And it's the least evangelized country in the world. And that just means that it has the least um, number of Christians, um, percentage of Christians um, for the entire population. So you just look around, you're like, this is crazy. But you can feel God moving and he's doing something and it's special and things are changing. The, the political situation is wild and crazy. But God is moving and people are coming to the church hungry. I don't know how many times it happens here, but every day... Sorry, I put a piece of gum in my mouth before. I didn't know. Um, we have about 50 people that come into the church a day just saying, I want to know who Jesus is. Why is Jesus God? Why did he come as a baby? What is going on? What is, how, how is he different than the other prophets? 50 people a day, most of them young people. Many of them, if not most of them, young men. So we're praying, and please pray with us 
For a generation of families where the men are leading an entire family to Christ, because the family group there is a whole different thing. I probably said this last time I was here, but the family is, you know, the grandpa or the great-grandpa all down through all the great-grandkids, and everyone's really connected, and they're all living in the same place. I know that that's our family here too, but they're all living in the same place. And if a grandpa gives their heart to Jesus, the whole family will give their heart to Jesus. And if a dad gives their heart to Jesus, the whole family will give their heart to Jesus. And so when you see men, fathers of families coming in, and they're like, I had a dream that there was this man, and he was shiny. And I don't know what that means, but I feel like I'm supposed to be here. And people are giving their lives to Jesus. Men are giving their lives to Jesus. And so we believe that it's, it's just like seeds of what's going to happen in the future for whole families to come to Jesus. So thank you for participating with us. We love you guys. And I, this is my home. This is my home church. You guys are my family. Pastor Tom's my, my spiritual dad. Christy's my spiritual mom. And I just love you guys. Love you all. I'm going to pray for you. Okay. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you. Oh, we just have to start out by saying we thank you, Jesus, for your death and for your resurrection on the, in, in, in the tomb. God, you came out of the tomb. Oh, I just was telling Alonso about it last night, Jesus. And he's just, he's just amazed. You came back to life. You ate fish with your friends. And we thank you for that. You revealed yourself to people. You came before people who were doubting. And you said, hey, look, look at the nail marks on my hands. Look what I went through. All for love. All for restoration. All for the presence, for the Holy Spirit to be able to come back and fill us. That we wouldn't be with just one man. It would have been amazing to have you here on the earth, Jesus, to continue here on the earth. But you sent your promised Holy Spirit. Oh, and we thank you for that. You knew what was better for us, Jesus. You knew. You knew you could have stayed, but you decided to send a Holy Spirit that would infinitely be able to fill an entire people across the entire planet to teach us, to encourage us. To, to fill us up every day, to give us hope, to give us joy, to help us fight depression, to help us be healed, to be light, to be salt and light to a lost and dying world. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit. And so my prayer today is, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us afresh and anew. We don't care if you filled us yesterday. We thank you for that infilling, but we, we pray for another filling Right now, we thank you that you filled us up this morning and that you gave us strength in the morning. We thank you that you gave us strength during worship, but it's never enough. We want more. And it's not because we're greedy. It's because we know the world needs you. And if we don't have you, they won't know you. Jesus, come. Come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us with the power of prophecy. Fill us with the power to reach out to others with compassion, to see people with your loving kindness, to look at people who are different than us, to look at people that are hurting, people that are going through pain, and to feel a deep compassion, to cry with people who are crying, to laugh with people who are laughing, to celebrate with those who are celebrating, even if they're different than us, even if they don't even believe what we believe, God. We ask you that you would give us so much that that wouldn't matter. And just what we have would just be splashing out everywhere we go. I just pray that over the Restoration Church in the name of Jesus. Just pour it out. Pour it out. Pour it out.
we want it. Remind us every morning when we wake up, oh, we need you. We need you. Without you, we're not going to see any change in our home or in our lives or, or in the world around us, in the political situation, in the, in the oh man, in the spiritual situation, the whole crazy world. We're not going to see one single change if we don't have you. We can't do it. And we recognize it. We recognize that we can't do it, and we need you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sending your Holy Spirit. We ask you for just a new infilling. Every moment, we need you. Thank you, Jesus, for this church. Just fill them up again. Fill me up again. Help me to never, ever forget how desperately I need you. How desperately we need you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brittany. Appreciate that. You know, I just, I don't know. I mean, maybe you know this, but I feel like I need to remind us of this. Um, everything that Jesus did on earth, he did not do as the Son of God. He did as the Son of Man. He was fully God, yes. But he laid aside his rights and privileges as God and became a man. And the scripture tells us that he went about doing good because God was with him. Not because he was God but because God was with him. And the same spirit that was on him is now upon us. And we can overcome temptation the same way he did. He can, if you, I, in fact, just yesterday I listened to a sermon um, about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I was putting the net on the trampoline yesterday. And uh, what better thing to do when you're putting the net on the trampoline but listen to a sermon. And uh, he, I mean, I've never heard the Garden of Gethsemane described the way I heard it yesterday. Um, literally describing Jesus as having a panic attack. I mean, how's that mess with your theology? But the crazy thing is, knowing what a panic attack feels like and looks like, yeah, I see it. I mean, it just makes the humanness of Jesus so much more real to understand what he faced. I don't know if you knew that within eight hours you were going to be brutally murdered that way, what you would be feeling at this moment. But I, I challenge you to go back through and read the story of the crucifixion with that in mind. As a human being, if you knew what was about to come, how would you be feeling? And look at how Jesus is feeling and how he fights that battle and how he overcomes that. It's just so, it's so profound and it's so powerful. And, uh, but don't believe the lie that Jesus was, he did it because he was God. Okay, because that's a lie. Uh, he, he did it because God was with him. And so whatever he did, you can do too if you just believe God is with you. Amen? All right. If you don't believe me, um, I'll just keep praying that one day you shall. Um, hold on. I need to turn. I forgot to turn off my notifications. And for those of you that sometimes like to text me during church, I don't want them to pop up on my computer while we're having church. And kind of reminds me of the time I texted Brittany one time during church. And uh, she announced to the whole congregation that I was texting her. And... Uh, accidentally <laughs> but uh, if you've got your bible turn it to the book of micah chapter 6 micah chapter 6 it's on page 768 if you're using the bibles that are provided for you on the pew in front of you <clears throat> we are in a series called unoffendable and it's based on a book that's written by brant hansen called unoffendable if you haven't picked up a copy they're available in the back for ten dollars and our small groups are going through those um, on wednesday nights if you're not a part of that and you'd like to be Mark it on your Connect card. We'll get you in one. There are discussion questions back there as well that go with it. 
But this is one of the most profound and important subjects, I believe, for churches. And that is because the opportunity to be offended is always going to come. In fact, we, we started our series by showing that the scripture tells us the opportunity for offense will always be there. Okay? We don't have to take that opportunity. Being unoffendable is a choice. Living that type of life. But it's a choice that requires us to lay down our right to be offended. It's a choice that requires us to lay down our right to hold on to anger or to hold on to hurt. And it's really about denying ourselves. In fact, I would go as far as to say unoffendable is all about honoring people. And did you know that the Bible says honor all people? 1 Peter 2.17. Look it up later if you don't believe me. Honor all people. People, period. That's what it says. We have a hard time with that. And uh, if you don't believe me, hopefully by the end of the sermon, you'll believe me that we have a hard time with it, but you'll also believe me it's a possibility to overcome that. And so today, part five is called, Do You Trust Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? And that's really appropriate, I think, for Easter Sunday because the whole point of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and if we put our trust in what he did for us, we are saved. And so most of us in this room right now are probably like, yes, I trust Jesus. And I've said the sinner's prayer and I've put my faith in him. I know he died for me. But my question is, does our life match that? Yes. Do our reactions match that? Yes. In fact, today we're really going to talk about trusting Jesus on two fronts. One, do we trust Jesus with the bad people? Do we trust Jesus with the bad people? The second front is do we trust Jesus with the good people? Do we trust Jesus with the good people? And that's kind of a a bad premise uh, because the Bible tells us there are no good people. So we're all, we're all bad people, but hopefully you understand what I mean as I go through that. I don't want to mess with semantics, but do we trust Jesus with the bad people? Do we trust him with the good people? And chapters 13, 14, and 15 is where I'm pulling some stuff from in today's sermon, but we're going to start in Micah chapter 6, and Micah is a small town prophet. So for those of us here in the Midwest, Micah is our guy, okay? He's, he's not one of the big guys like Isaiah. Isaiah is in Jerusalem at the same time Micah is prophesying. Isaiah's down in Jerusalem, the big city. He's the big city prophet. Micah's just out in the countryside pro prophesying to the people of Judah. Micah really has an awareness of the poor being mistreated and exploited. In fact, God is very upset at the way his people are treating the poor, the way that they're mistreating them and exploiting them. And Micah comes along and he starts to call out these specific sins that the people of Judah are guilty of. And he's warning them if they don't turn from that sin, they're going to have God's judgment come. Okay? Idolatry, pride, the oppression of the poor, the bribery that is taking place, materialism, greed, immorality, empty religion and religious sacrifices that really have no meaning for them. All of these things he actually calls out. It's a short book. It's worth the read sometime. Um, and it's not just depressing because it ends with hope. It ends with the fact that God is going to judge his people, yes, but there's a hope that comes after judgment. God is not into just making you feel bad about yourself and smushing you down. He wants you to experience sorrow that brings you godly sorrow, that brings you to repentance, a change of life, so that you can walk in his blessings. 
That's his whole purpose and point. And so he even begins to prophesy messianically about Jesus, the Messiah, who's coming later on. But we're in chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 8, or verse 1, excuse me. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and the hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. In a chapter before, it, Micah was listing Israel's complaints about God. So when it's God's turn to speak, it's like he's calling court into session. Okay, And he's actually putting juries in place. His jury is the mountains and the hills. The, the creation that has been around since the beginning. I want you to come. I want you to be the jury. You've heard their complaints. Now I'm about to make my complaints and then you tell me who's just. And so then he goes on. Oh my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt, and I redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed? And how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from the Asia Grove to Gilgal, when I, the Lord, did everything I could teach you about my faithfulness. Now, he is giving them some specific moments from their history that they would have been fully aware of. Of, and I don't have time today to go into them because I know Easter dinner is on the horizon and you've got to get there. And so I, I'm not going to tell you all of this history, but they understood it. You know what they understood? God is good. God is faithful. He never treats his people the way they deserve. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. They are probably recognizing now, oh yeah, we forgot. Because they were complaining. God, you've forgotten us. You've forsaken us. You've done all these things. You're a terrible God. And now they're thinking, um, maybe we spoke too soon. In fact, at the end of Micah's book, in, verse, in chapter 7, this is what Micah says. He is overwhelmed. He says, who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever. You delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. I mean, that's the God we serve. And that's who he's reminding them of. Now, Israel's response comes next in verse 6. And we're not sure that this is actually Israel's response because they really never turn from their sin. But their response, and so we, th we think this is like sarcasm or this is the empty religion that he's condemning. But look at your, look at your Bibles there, verse 6. What can we bring to the Lord? We've sinned. What should we bring? Should we bring him burnt offerings? They were already doing that. They, they weren't turning from their wickedness, but they were bringing burnt offerings. Now look at this. Should we bow down before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? I see the hyperbole there. Are you, did you open your Bible or are you just trusting me? Because some of you look like you're trusting me. Some of you look like you're making sure it's in the Bible. So if you're not opening your Bible, maybe look at someone around you and say, is he, is he right? So what he's saying is, you know, they're, they're willing to make these grand sacrifices. Hey, I'll bring thousands of olive oil. I won't stop oppressing the poor and I won't stop mistreating people, but I'm going to bring great sacrifices. I mean, oh, if I had 10,000 tongues, I would praise you, but I'm going to walk out that door and curse my brother. The, the empty religion that he's condemning 
here. And then he even goes further. Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? Maybe we need to do something crazy like even sacrifice our firstborn son to show you how sorry we are. And then Micah turns it and he says, no, no, no. You don't need to do that. The Lord has already told you what is good. Verse 8. And this is what he requires of you. To do what is right. Some of your versions may say to act justly. To do what is right. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Now when Jesus walked the earth, Jesus was confronting the religious people of his day in much the same way that the prophet is here confronting the people in the Old Testament. And in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus says this, What sorrow awaits you teachers of the law and you Pharisees, you're hypocrites. In other words, they kept going through the religious motion. I mean, they were offering sacrifices, but there was no change of behavior. Okay, they just kept bringing offerings and sacrifices. They kept singing songs. They kept going through the routine, but they didn't change the way that they actually lived. There was no sorrow that led them to repentance. You're careful, he says, to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb garden. So they go out, they collect their herbs, they make sure that 10 leaves here, okay, one leaf for God, nine for me. One leaf for God, nine for me. One leaf for God. They're, I mean, they're that meticulous, But Jesus says you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. And I don't think faith is that far different than walking humbly with our God that Micah uses. Jesus uses faith, that word trust. To walk humbly before God just literally means I understand who God is. I understand who I am. I understand that he's never treated me like I deserve. I understand that without him, I'm nothing. I'm not righteous. I'm not better than any other human being on the planet. I don't care if my behavior maybe looks like I'm better than them. We're all on equal footing before the Lord. We're all horrible. We're bad. We're evil. Every inclination of our heart is evil. But because of his mercy, he has made me new. And so that's what it means to walk humbly before God. It's not, that that idea of trust that Jesus uses or faith is the same type of concept. Then Jesus says, you should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. In other words, what Jesus is reminding the people here, what Micah's reminding them is, God's not interested in activity. He's not interested in just empty religion. He's looking for a people to represent him on the earth. He doesn't care if you come every Sunday and sing songs, if you walk back out there and all week long you do not represent him. Because how will the people out there know who he is? If we don't represent him, if we are mistreating the poor, if we are being evil and oppressive, if we are doing these things that do not represent him, it doesn't matter if you come to church every Sunday because then we do not represent who he is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, God says, I will live with them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. This has been his heart's cry forever. Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2. You are not like the people of the world. You are a chosen people. You're royal priests. You're a holy nation. You're God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. 
For he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, but now you're God's people. Once you received no mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. Now here's the thing. Representing God on this earth is a very tall order. Could you say amen to that? How many of you know we don't do it very well? Because what we tend to do as humans is we overemphasize one aspect of God's nature and we neglect another aspect of his nature, just like the Pharisees. We're, God says tithe, but we're neglecting justice. God says go to church every week, but we're neglecting mercy. God says do this, but we neglect this. And it's like this war that goes on to try to represent him the way that he needs to be represented. And the way that we need to represent him is to walk humbly before him. Not to forget that we needed mercy just like the person that we're yelling at needed mercy. Just like the person who mistreated us, we mistreated him. See, we're not better than the other one. This is what Brant is trying to get across to us in these chapters. Because we, we need to pursue justice, but we need to love mercy. And I don't know about you, but I don't think they go together. You can't have justice and mercy, can you? I mean, if you go into a courtroom and someone committed a crime, justice is they pay for the crime. Mercy is they don't have to pay for the crime. How can you possibly have justice and mercy together? I don't know fully, but I'm going to keep pursuing it. And sometimes in our offense, our anger, we're like, well, you know, it's righteous anger. We excuse it because, I mean, there's an injustice and I should be angry about this injustice. Right? Well, let me show you a couple pictures. Everyone know who this is? This is Mayor Pete Buttigieg. I don't know how to say his name, but it's something like that. There's actually funny videos on, on YouTube about people mispronouncing his name, and I, you go watch it. But he's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and he has got an impressive track record, and he is a very likable guy. I've watched his interviews, and he's likable. His goal is to be the first homosexual president of the United States. He is running for president of the United States. And again, he's very likable. And he's got a very good track record. And he would be the youngest president ever elected if he wins the election. And I was watching because I came across him because he was being heckled at one of his rallies by a lovely Bible person thumping their Bible, yelling, Remember Sodom and Gomorrah! How do we talk about homosexuality? How do we pursue justice and yet love mercy? It's hard. It's hard. But it's worth the fight. Generally, we don't heckle people. Because when we were at our worst and we were enemies, did we get heckled? No, he laid his life down for us. And see, the problem is some of the ways that we have to actually do this are costly to us. In order for me to, to bring justice into someone's life, I actually have to love mercy to the point that it costs me and I have to do something hard or I have to do something costly to get justice into their life or to help them see it clearly. But maybe, how about this guy? Emmanuel Deshaun Aranda. Do you know who this guy is? He's been in the news recently, too. He went into the Mall of America all for the purpose of killing someone. That's what he wanted to go there for. Okay, so he walked in there, and he was going to kill an adult, but for some reason, he picked a five-year-old boy up, and he threw him over a third-level balcony. And now, I know what all of us good people say is like, man, I, I don't understand how someone would do that, but here's the thing. I understand how someone would do that. 
Because I know except for the grace and mercy of God in my life, I am totally capable of that. I mean, some of you in this room would say, I am, would never be capable of that. Well, you're fooling yourself because every one of us in this room without the mercy and grace of God, totally capable of it. Because when we turn our back on God, when we don't worship him as God, when we don't receive him, he turns us over to ourselves and the scripture says we get worse and worse. We invent new ways of sinning. That's how bad it gets. That's what's in our hearts. Now, totally needs to face justice. Totally needs to go before a judge and receive what's due him. But the comments that we love to throw on Facebook about a special place in hell reserved for people like this, not sure we're doing it well. Or this lady. And I wasn't able to find out whether or not this lady, uh, if this is a real picture or if it's been photoshopped. By the way, if you didn't know this, not everything on the internet is true. Okay? So when you post stuff and you start ranting about stuff and then you find out later that it was a made-up picture and it's not true. You know, I just watched a video yesterday about how President Trump is so great. He's stopping every truck at the border and they're catching all these drugs. And you can clearly tell that this is not America in the video, but everybody's talking about how great President Trump is. And I don't care whether he's great or not. That's not what's happening in that video. And so don't post stuff that, you know... To, to further your cause unless you know it's true. But the, here's this lady. My abortion was fabulous. And again, this pure evil lady needs to burn in hell is the comment I see as I read it. And I don't even respond half the time anymore to those comments because when I do, then people yell at me and they're upset. And I, I just don't know how to do it on social media. In fact, Brant will tell us in our reading this week that uh, I, got, I got to find it. I think it's called skeptivism. I know I put it in my notes, but I can't find it right now. I think it's called, if I find, no, it's, it's not skeptivism. It's like slackivism. <laughs> when I find it in a minute, I'll, I'll remind you. But here's what it is. We get angry about stuff on social media, and we're like ranting and raving, but we actually don't do anything in our daily lives to make that situation better or to bring hope into that situation. So we just, we just want to, you know, have a cause and so we get all loud and we put people down and it makes us feel better about ourselves but we're actually not doing anything about it and that's what our generation is starting to be all about but these people aren't even the hardest ones the hardest ones are the people who are perpetrators against me the people who are victimized me the people who are slandering me or talking about me or hurting me or trying to get me fired or doing something in my life to make my life miserable how do I seek justice and yet love mercy? It really is all about trusting Jesus who came full of grace and truth. Dare I say he came full of justice and mercy. He came full of those things. And so like the prophet Micah, we're faced with this idea of how do we pay for our sins? And we know we cannot. There's no amount of sacrifices that you and I can make to pay for our sins, but our sins have already been paid for because of the cross. And you and I are totally forgiven because Christ died in our place. In fact, in the book of Titus, it tells us when God, our Savior, revealed 
His kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out that spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. And when we come into the kingdom, I mean, we, we recognize that it's salvation, but then the, the longer we're in the kingdom, the more we have a tendency to look down on people outside the kingdom that haven't done as well as us. And we kind of push them down, and we try to get them to clean up their lives like us before bringing them to the cross. Here's the thing. We can't stop calling sin, sin. Because if there's no sin, then there's no mercy or grace. I mean, we can't stop pursuing justice. There has to be justice. Because if there's no justice, there's, there's no grace or mercy. And so we have to pursue justice. But we have to, at the same time, love mercy. And that's hard for us to balance in our daily lives. Brant does a great job of helping us see it and pointing it out. And I just challenge you to read these chapters this week with an open mind and just allow the Holy Spirit to maybe show you a little bit more how to do this in your daily life, how to plug these things in to our lives. In the book of Romans, chapter 12, the apostle Paul warns us about this same thing too. Never pay back evil with more evil. So if someone wrongs you, and you tell everyone about the wrong they've done to you, that's paying back evil for evil. Okay, just so you know. Just because you don't hit them the same way they hit you, you're paying back evil for evil. Okay? But do things in a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. Never take revenge, but leave that to the righteous anger of God. I mean... I want to have the righteous anger of God, don't you? I mean, there's so much injustice. I want to have the righteous anger of God. But God says, no, you leave that to me. And I will take revenge. I will pay them back. For you, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Don't let evil conquer you. The moment we pay back evil for evil, evil is conquering us. We're blinded to it. But if we want evil to be overcome, then we give kindness. In Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 through 22, because this idea of putting burning coals on their head actually comes from an Egyptian practice where people put coals on their head in a sign of repentance, and they carried that as a sign of repentance. So what Paul and what we believe Proverbs is trying to teach us is not that you're going to make people feel evil when you're good to them and they were mean to you. So kill them with kindness. That's not what this is talking about. It's saying in order to lead people to repentance, to, to lead people to a place where they're ever going to recognize they've done wrong, you have to be good to them. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. He never treated us as our sins deserved. While we were at our worst, this is what he did for us. And this is what we must be willing to do also. I just watched 
Slacktivism, I found it. There it is. I don't know what it's doing here. It should have been way up earlier in my notes. Slacktivism. It's taking a stand that costs us nothing and not actually doing anything to help or bring about that change. It's in the book. It's slacktivism. It's great. But just this last week, um, you know, was the Columbine anniversary, 20 years since the Columbine shooting. And the Today Show did an amazing um, interview with the, the people of Columbine and what had taken place there. Um, that school shooting that took 13 lives. And uh, Rachel's mother, if you remember Rachel Scott and the whole story behind her. And uh, her mom was being interviewed and she said, I felt like the Lord told me to reach out to the mom of the shooter. Like right after it happened. Reach out to the mom of the shooter. I don't know, the shooter, the, I don't know, how do you, what do you, somebody shoots your kid, how do you reach out to the mom of the person that shot your kid? I mean, I just, what, and so she's like, Lord, what do I say? And she's like, I realize we both lost a child. What do I say, Lord? He said, ask her about her son before April the 20th, 1999. Because this woman also lost her son, but she had shame and guilt because her son took the lives. And this mom who reached out to her opened the door to forgiveness, to peace, to healing because she allowed, she asked about her son before, before he did this. Who's that little boy you raised? That's the type of act justly, love mercy that has to be in our lives. We cannot be motivated by anger. We cannot be motivated by doing the right thing. We must be motivated by love. Love for victims, love for perpetrators, love for bystanders, love for our enemies. For most of us, we're worried that God isn't noticing. We're worried that somebody somewhere is going to get away with something. If we don't say something, can I trust you? Nobody's getting away with anything. And God is more than able to deal with them. Trust him with the bad people. But what about the good people? I mean, we're the good people, right? <laughs> it's okay to answer. Yes, we are. I mean, we're the ones that are trying to serve God. We're the ones that are reading the word. We're the ones that are trying to put it into practice. I mean, for all intents and purposes, we're the good people. And so if I'm going to serve God, and everything then is going to work out for me, right? Right? I mean, if I serve God, he's going to protect my family, right? Nothing bad's going to happen to my family if I serve God. That doesn't happen. And we don't know what to do with this. There's a couple stories in the New Testament where one in Luke chapter 18, a guy comes to Jesus, the rich young ruler, remember, and he says, good teacher, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Good teacher. And Jesus is like, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. And he, Jesus tells him, you just keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. And the man says, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. What's he trusting in? His works. I've done it. I'm good. I am good. So Jesus says, okay, if you want to be good by the law standard, here's what you got to do. You got to sell everything you have and you got to, Come follow me. See, Jesus doesn't, I mean, how many of you in this room have sold everything you have right now? You've sold it all. You've put it all in this, none of us. In fact, in the New Testament, nowhere does the early church tell people to sell everything and bring it. Some of them did. Some of them sold land and fields and houses, and they brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Remember the couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they sold it, and they pretended to bring it all. 
And the apostles are like, what are you doing? You didn't have to do this. You didn't have to bring it all. In fact, you could have sold it and brought half as long as you were honest. But because you lied, you didn't lie to us. You lied to the Holy Spirit. Ouch. And they died. So it's not like Jesus is establishing a commandment that all of us now have to sell everything. No, he's meeting this guy right where he is. If you want to be good by the law, then you have to go all in with the law. You sell everything you have and you give it to the poor and you come follow me. And the man went away sad because he was very rich. And the disciples are like, who could be saved? If I mean, and Jesus is like, with man, this is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Why? Because he's going to pay the price. He's going to pay the price. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is pretty clear that if we want to be his disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, even your own life. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. And if you don't carry your own cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. You cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. He's not saying you actually have to sell it all, but you have to give up the right to anything. You have to give up the right to be offended. You have to give up the right to carry hurt around. You have to give up the right to revenge. You have to give up the right to your possessions. You have to give up the right to all of it. If you want to follow after me. But there's no promise that if I do this, I'm going to get that promotion. I'm never going to be passed over for a promotion. I'm going to get that raise. I'm going to get that car. I'm going to, get, I'm going to prosper financially. Now, Paul says, I've learned to be content in every circumstance. If I've got enough, praise God. If I lack, I'll figure out how to make that work. Because I want him. And Brant, Brant really does some 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 good work, surgery on our hearts this week because he asks the question, do we trust God with our families? Because right here, it says we've got to put Jesus above our families. Do we trust God with our families? Because you know what? I've known missionaries that have lost children on the field. I don't... Uh, God, what about the, the jerk over here who is unrighteous and his kids live long lives? And this person over here is serving you, is giving you everything, and their child dies? Where's the justice in that? Where's the mercy in that? That doesn't make any sense. See, we don't have to just trust God with the bad people. Now we got to trust him with the good people. we got to figure out, what do I do when I, I've done everything right? And it, it still doesn't work out. Because sometimes that's what happens. And Brant reminds us that the safety of our family can actually become an idol in our lives. The safety of our family actually can get ahead of God. God, I'm not going to do that. I mean, we look at people all the time that go on the mission field with children and we're like, you know, I, that's just not practical. That's just not safe. What are they doing? They've entrusted everything to Jesus, not because they believe it's all going to work out, but because they trust Jesus. I mean... Ultimately, we've been called to follow him and obey him, not understand him. And if you have a God that is not mysterious to you at all, he's not much of a God. He's a God of your own making. And I wish, I wish that people that did it right, it all worked out for them. But it doesn't always. But I'm not going to stay there and think, well, because this person died, then it just must be God's will and I'm just, I'm, I'm, 
if that person got sick and died, so it must be God's will. Now, I'm going to still fight for the things of the kingdom, but I'm going to trust when I don't understand. I'm going to trust when I don't understand. The last from Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, if you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Give up your own way. Oh, how un-American of him. I mean, after all, it's all about my way. It's all about what my, my needs are. It's all about me. If you want to be my follower, you give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, ultimately you'll lose it. But if you give it up for my sake, you will save it. What does it benefit you if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul or yourself? Is anything worth more than your soul? Trust. Trust. That's a funny word. In fact, a lot of us put it on this plaque in our homes. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. Sometimes we stop there. Because it's easier to do that. But what about when you get passed over for the promotion and you get passed over because someone lied about you? Oof. What do you do then? In all your ways, submit to him. Don't take revenge. Don't spread rumors about them. I mean, nothing wrong with going to your boss and trying to set the record straight for yourself. But outside of that room, I mean, it's easy to say we trust Jesus, but... The question is, do we really? How many offenses do we hold on to? The nice thing about living in a small town is you get to bump into people a lot. It's also the bad thing about living in a small town. You get to bump into people a lot. So that person that you have a problem with or that hurt you or did something to you, you see them everywhere. Everywhere. And sometimes I wonder if God does that on purpose. Not because he's mad at us, but because he knows the only way to work out good in our lives is for us to learn how to be unoffendable. How to honor people that very much so aren't honorable at all. Remember that scripture? Honor, honor all people. Honor all people. Honor all people. Honor all people. Honor all all people. Please don't misunderstand. There needs to be justice. There needs to be wrongs made right. In fact, we're given authority on the earth because if you harm your neighbor and you're not going to just do good because you're supposed to do good to your neighbor, then at least you're going to do it because you're afraid of the, the law. You're afraid of what's going to happen to you if you harm your neighbor. That's what's happened here. But it's really not up to the government to tell people to stop sinning. It's up to the government to tell people to stop sinning against their neighbor. But it's not the government's job to correct all sin in the world. In fact, it's really not even our job. It's our job to bring people to the cross. It's our job to point out to people that there is sin in our lives. And because of that sin, we're going to face judgment. But thankfully, you don't have to now. You have a choice. 
But don't slip into that religious mindset that says, I would never be as bad as that guy. I want you to close your eyes for just a moment. We're going to get ready to close. But I need you to, to maybe focus for just a second. Because we don't want it to be about these three people in the, on the national stage. We want it to be the people in our lives. See, because every one of us have somebody that has wronged us or hurt us or put us in a situation that the opportunity for offense is there. And ultimately, we wrestle with the idea that I would never act like that person. That person is so wrong and I would never act like that person. And every time I hear that phrase in my head, I can't help but think of Jesus' story about the tax collector and the Pharisee who stood praying. And the tax collector, or the Pharisee says, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like that tax collector over there. I thank you that I do good. And the tax collector just comes and says, God, I am so unworthy of you. There's nothing good in me. And he repents. Jesus says, which one goes home justified? See, humility isn't just always thinking, well, I'm a wretch, I'm a wretch, I'm a wretch. I'm not a wretch. I'm a son of God. But I'm only a son of God because of what he did for me, not because of anything I've done. My salvation depends on him from start to finish. I don't receive the Holy Spirit because of the good things I've done. I receive the Holy Spirit because I put faith in Jesus because of what he did. This is what Paul's telling the Galatians. You're not saved because of your works. You're saved because of what Christ has done for you from beginning to end. But don't let that be an excuse to sin because you've died to sin. You can't live in it any longer. In fact, if you continue to give your body to sin, eventually you're going to die. But if you give your body to the Spirit, you're going to find life. And whether that sin is homosexuality, or that sin is abortion, or that sin is pornography, or that sin is sexual immorality, or that sin is just lying, or spreading a rumor, or spreading true gossip, or just avoiding people that have wronged you. See, no matter how little that sin, it's still giving ourselves to sin. And God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to eternal life. And so the question of the day is, do you trust Jesus? If you're in this room and you've never put trust in Jesus for your sin, you've never come to the cross and recognized that you've broken God's law and you deserve death, you deserve punishment, but because of what Christ has done, you don't have to receive that. If you've never believed that, You've never confessed your sin before God and you're here today and you want to do that, would you just slip up your hand and say, that's me. I, I, I need to, to get right with God today. I've never done it before and I need to do it. Is there anyone in the room that that's you? I didn't think so because you're good people. I mean, I recognize almost all of you. And so I recognize you have put faith in Christ. The question now for us is do we trust him with the bad people? We give an into slacktivism where it's easier to rant about righteousness than walk in it. 
It's easier to put it on a national scale than on a personal scale. Maybe your offense is at God. Maybe you're having a hard time trusting Him with the good people. You've done everything right and He has not come through the way you expected. The way you think justice demands. I want to challenge you before you leave today. If the Holy Spirit has shown you anything, where there's a lack of trust for the bad people or lack of trust for the good people, make that right. Repent of it. Admit it to him. God, I lack trust in you. I lack trust in you. I have to do it pretty regularly, I'll just tell you. I lack trust in him on a regular basis, not on grand scales, just on the little ones, the little irritations that come. But thanks to Brant and God's word, I'm starting to recognize it more and more. And trust me, I hear, I hear you guys. You're like, ah, oh, this book is driving me nuts. It is. It's relentless. But I love where it's taken us. Because we're going to be a church that honors all people. And we're going to be a church that doesn't sweep things under the rug and doesn't say, you know, thank God we're not like those evil people. We're going to know who we are. We're going to know we're totally capable of being that evil person. But we're going to be so grateful for the mercy and grace of God. And it's going to fill our lives in so, such profound ways that it's going to flow out of us. And it's going to transform this city. That's what I believe. And so while it hurts for a time, be assured if you give in to the discipline of the Lord, it's producing something so good in you. So stand with me if you would. I'm going to close in prayer and I'm going to dismiss you. But these altars are going to be open and our prayer team is going to be here in the front. And if there's something you need to, to repent of, don't even wait till I'm done praying. Just come. Just come in to kneel and say, God, I need to lay this down. I, I've, I've stopped trusting you in this way. And I want to lay it down. I just want to be honest with you, God. I want you to come and fill me fresh. The Bible says when you repent, times of refreshing come from the Lord. And so let him refresh you. You don't have to carry that burden to try to make justice happen. Just repent and put it in his hands. And so, Father, today we thank you. I thank you that you've never treated us as our sins deserved. God, I thank you that you are slow to anger and abounding in love. God, that even though you are just and judgment comes from you, God, you are abounding in mercy. And I thank you that while we were your enemies, you died for us. You demonstrated that love for us. And you poured out mercy upon us. And Father, I thank you for everyone in this room that's put trust in you. They've put trust in you for the salvation of their souls. They've put trust in the finished work of Jesus on that cross. And we trust today that that tomb is empty, that your spirit lives in us. Now, God, help us to trust you with the bad people in our world. Help us to trust you for every one of those injustices. God, help us not to give in to slacktivism. Help us not to return evil for evil, but help us to overcome evil with good. 
Help us to give food to our enemies. Help us to pray for those who persecute us. Help us to bless those that curse us. Father, I pray especially for those in this room, God, that have tried to serve you with their whole heart. And God, that hope in their lives somehow has been deferred and their heart has been made sick. Holy Spirit, would you come right now in a special way and bring healing to that heart. To that moment of breakthrough that didn't come in the time it was needed. To that disappointment, God, that has just latched onto that heart today. Would you bring healing and wholeness even now? Now, Holy Spirit, I ask for grace to live unoffendable today. For grace to live unoffendable this week. Help us to put into practice these things that you've shown us from your word today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And our prayer team will always be here in the front. If you need some prayer and you want to be prayed for before you leave, we'd love that opportunity. But if you need to go, God bless you as you go. Happy Easter.